Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the forensic psych topic of brutal brothers and sinister sisters, family members who kill together. Hey folks, so last week we brought you the audio from our live crossover event with our wildly talented colleagues over at LA Meekly and Hollywood Paranormal and in a wonderfully creepy setting at the Heritage Square Museum that was just off the hook. We provided a multimedia presentation of the history, the crimes and the hauntings of LA's Greystone Mansion. It's a really great story that Dr. Shiloh and I are going to be exploring further. So please check it out and then we'll be getting back to you with an even more in-depth episode about the crimes. Again, such a great experience. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody. <laughs> I We had such a great turnout. It was amazing. And it's not, I mean, our fans are always great, but the crossover of three different yes! LA-based podcasts got a lot of people there. And we were, it's so funny because we, you know, we really did not have a budget for this, but we cobbled something together mm-hmm. with like, I think I would, like I told you, I had can lamps that were 30 years old <laughs> that we were using to- And they were awesome. Flood these, yeah, to flood these velvet drapes and it was just very cool like so. you said it, it ended up being a step above a barn performance <laughs> yes <laughs> thank goodness phew yes. at the last Woo. minute too yeah but we will definitely be going back and collaborating with heritage square again because For they sure. talk about an awesome partner in production they were just great so as we said before the break our episode today is on the forensic psych topic of siblings that commit horrific crimes of murder we'll explore the wide range of factors that can bring family members together in such acts. And while there is some data in certain areas of this type of crime, it is limited, leaving a good bit of conjecture on the motivations behind these killings. We'll cover a couple of theories about this phenomenon and review a few of the most egregious examples that include the murdering twins of Conyers, Georgia, the Wichita Horror Brothers, and the Irish Scissor Sisters. Not the band, but they were dubbed that by the media. This sounds so terrifying to, already. <laughs> I know, really. Maybe this we could re-release this on Halloween. So this week's episode describes several scenes of violence, including sexual assault and murder and the means of murder and body horror. So just heads up, take care of yourself if you need to. Yes, absolutely. Siblings have always had a knack for passing on risky behaviors to each other. And there's a lot of research in this area. Studies show that a girl with an older sister who's already a teen mom is six times more likely to follow in her footsteps. An individual, say, who has a sibling who drinks doubles the chance of also picking up the habit. And then something like the risk of becoming a smoker quadruples if you have a smoking sibling. So doesn't this show how powerful that social influence is? It just makes so much sense. And when we were putting together the research for this, I did an intake of breath about the sister getting pregnant, more likely to become pregnant if an older sister has a a child. That's stunned me. But it is then not surprising that this social impact, this social effect that close family members can have on each other, not a surprise at all when it comes to criminal activities that the stats get really interesting. And that's because there's so many factors that are at play in situations like this, like money, like education, whether or not you have two parents at home. And in this area of sibling violence, researchers have found more data in studying men, of course, because men tend to get 
into more trouble yeah. more often than women. So studies show that when brothers settle their disputes, it's generally in some sort of violence. Even if it doesn't come to serious harm, yeah. there's always some punches that are thrown and they're way more likely to become violent offenders as they grow up. So again, studies show that when brothers settle their disputes by throwing punches, they then will become more likely to become violent offenders when they grow up. And studies from the University of Florida showed that these same guys who were into brother brawls were also more prone to a future history of dun, 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 sexual abuse or battery. Interesting. Yeah. Because you think that brother brawls, I would say, are probably pretty common. I mean, I've had a lot of sisters and we had brawls. <laughs> So I imagine for boys. Yeah, I think it must be about the level of interaction, mm. like, you know, pushing each other around a couple of words, you know, rolling around, but like actual punches where people come to blows. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. That seems to like kind of push it. It's almost when we talk about that difference between oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder. Right. So already within a family unit, you're probably going to be more, or let me say you're going to be less inhibited. Sure. From throwing a punch. Like you wouldn't punch somebody at school, but ugh, it's my brother. Bam, right. you know. Interesting. That'll lead into our psychopathy talk later too. So statistics are important, but they don't always tell us why any particular pair of siblings decides to commit a crime together. And in this case, we're talking about a few things that probably push the risk factor higher. Most importantly, a shared living space. So proximity plays a huge role in what we call delinquency training between siblings. It's not just about the smaller stuff like smoking or drinking but it's also about observing and imitating behaviors, both good and bad, as well as access to substances, both legal and illegal. Right. Psychologists interviewed sibling pairs on video along with other kids and asked them to imagine planning a party where some of the kids were going to be bringing in drugs. The siblings then had to debate whether that was cool and if they'd want to try them. And unsurprisingly, if an older sibling said that it was okay, the younger one was much more likely to say the same. So there's another term I love of the, the term that you came up with in the last paragraph, because I had never heard that before, quote unquote, delinquency training. Yeah, yep. So as, as a follow-up, we have another term in this whole study called direct mimicry. So, and that's referring to the behaviors that are copied. And those behaviors were only possible because they had been observed so close to each other. Again, in that proximity of the sibling relationship. Sure. So it's easy to pick up a cigarette or a pill, maybe more so than to pick up a life of crime, obviously. Right, right. <laughs> but when adult siblings share a home, the influence they have on each other can be really, really intense. Researchers think that siblings who live together as young adults, which could totally make sense in tough times or tough circumstances, they hit a point where their constant contact with family actually starts to stunt their social growth. I'm already, I mean, this is awful. I'm already starting to think about the Duggar series that's going to be released. Oh, God. Like, we're going to have to revisit that. But isn't that interesting to think about when you live in that closed environment, how, of course, it makes sense. Yes. You're going to stunt the emotional overall growth. Yeah, no separation, right? I mean, just right. being around people all the time. So usually when siblings aren't living together, they realize that they need their own space and enter a phase called sibling moratorium where they spend less time together until they've kind of settled into their own lives. So hanging around too long in an intimate proximity hinders that crucial developmental period. But let's drill down a bit further into psychopathy in families. Yeah, and again... 
very interesting research on this because the most recent stuff that's come out, especially now in this time with advanced brain imaging technology, the research is showing using that technology and genetic biological markers, it strongly indicates that psychopathy can run in families can emphasis, not Mm -hmm. necessarily does, but can run in families. And the studies show that having a family member who is diagnosed with psychopathy increases the likelihood of other family members exhibiting similar traits, emphasis on the word traits. And, you know, all of my, all of our psych colleagues and peers out there. Yes. I know that psychopathy is not a diagnosis. I'm just using it in terms of this particular paragraph, right? So one study has shown that individuals with a family history of psychopathy are much likely to exhibit more traits than those who do not have confirmed family members with severe personality disorders. So they're also kind of expanding it to this Mm -hmm. traits and also in a kind of a global sort of a global or holographic paradigm of personality disorders overall. Yes. Yes, for sure. And first degree relatives of individuals with psychopathy have a much greater chance of having the condition than we see in the general population. And the studies now show that the genetic influence is believed to take a unidirectional approach. So from a supposedly psychopathic parent, then down to the children. However, we also know that environmental factors play a vital role in influencing the development of the disorder. Research shows that it is more prevalent among individuals who have had a history of severe childhood abuse or neglect. So you need that other component. Yes. And you're always so great. I mean, ever because of course, you're the best talking head in the world. And like, no, you really are. You've been so great when you've gone on lately because you're always emphasizing that fact. You know, when the news heads want to kind of drive the the narrative. I love how you pull back and show how important that is. So when we think about those factors, early life trauma and neglect can definitely contribute to disrupted attachment between a child and their primary caregiver. And then that can lead to psychopathic-like traits. So even if not the full-blown condition, trauma can result in the development of what we call maladaptive coping skills that can very much present as psychopathy, like a lack of empathy, impulsive behavior, grandiose sense of self-worth, all those things, which can absolutely be mimicry Mm -hmm. of your parental environment. And then a study conducted in 2018 by Williamson found a significant genetic component to psychopathy by studying a sample of about 2,100 pairs of twins. That study found that the genetic factors accounted for approximately 56% of the variance in psychopathy. The study also found evidence of strong environmental factors. So it's not just nature or nurture, it's nature and nurture. But really significantly, the experiences of child abuse and neglect contributing to psychopathic traits. The conclusion from that study indicated that genetic factors play a significant role in the development of psychopathy, but environmental factors such as adverse childhood experiences can interact with genetic vulnerabilities to increase the risk of developing the actual diagnosable disorder or significant behavioral traits. Yep. So it's always a three-legged stool. Don't forget brain, genetics, and the abuse factor. So you need all three of those generally. And also I want to go back to what you were saying with the, you know, psychopathic parent and the child subsequent psychopathic traits being a result of that trauma. I mean, makes sense, especially if there's like severe childhood neglect and abuse, what kind of people are perpetrating that, first of all. But also we're not saying that that happens every time by any means. We know psychopathy is a very small percentage of the population. There are incredibly resilient people who have psychopathic parents who have, like what you work with, 
folks that have parents with all sorts of disorders and personality disorders. So and and individuals who have incredibly high scores on ACEs, like terrible, terrible adverse childhood experiences. Yep. But then don't go on to develop any of this again because of those the factors of those that stool, the three elements. Yeah. Yeah. So another study we want to talk about was conducted by Frick and his colleagues in 2018. And it found that parenting practices may also contribute to the development of psychopathy. And in their study sample of 116 male children who had been engaged in the legal system for serious crimes found that parental rejection punitive discipline and low warmth and affection were associated with higher levels of psychopathic traits. So they're plucking out a few traits from psychopathy, attributing those to the the environment, the parental environment, and then looking at the kiddos that had traits of their own. And the study suggests that parenting practices may influence the development of psychopathy and psychopathic traits by shaping a child's emotional and behavioral regulation abilities. And just as importantly, I think a child's behaviors can change the parenting style of the parent. Absolutely. I wish that was more talked about. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's talked about enough. And and Frick was really great for bringing that out. Again, all of our show notes, we refer you to these pages. So, But it's not just violent. Crime. No, 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 not at all. It's it's just interesting. I mean, you know, that kid with the psychopathic traits picked up from the parental or from the family environment may very well be another, the next Fortune 500 CEO. Totally. Who knows? Yeah. Right. And there's also like a carve out in this area when it comes to particularly the area of cyber crimes and the data is a lot more clear, which is very interesting. So the criminal behavior of family members in this study were compared between three groups, 979 cyber offenders 979 traditional offenders and 979 non-offenders. That's like wild that they specifically got. <laughs> you couldn't get three one more for 979. <laughs> I know, just like this rounded up. But both cyber offenders and traditional offenders showed a higher likelihood of having criminal parents and siblings compared to non-offenders. There was no significant difference in family member offending between cyber offenders and traditional offenders. However, it was observed that cyber offenders were more likely to have criminal parents and siblings when they also engaged in traditional offenses. This is so interesting. Like when you found this, I'm like, what? Like I would have never even thought of like this type of crime. And I just picture someone doing cybercrime, like in total secrecy, you know, not not having a parent to mimic or not having a sibling that they're doing it in tandem or anything like that. It was This was wild to me. Well, you know, I wonder if we have a bias in this way, because mm. you and I are are when it comes to like cybercrime, almost immediately, I'm going to think of illegal child sex images. Mm. I'm going to be thinking about all those kind of secrecy crimes when it may be that the crimes they're talking talking about in this particular area are actually like fraud, right? Like cyber fraud, yeah. that kind of, you know, financial transactions or scamming people online. So yeah. I, I just wonder if it's then more reflective on criminal families, like kids who've grown up with fraud and this kind of criminal activity is just being normative. This is just what you do. This is how we make money. It's just another and way. Of, this is another way to make money. And, yeah. you know, if you're fucking stupid for falling for it. You know, that kind of <laughs> right. that kind of outlook. Yeah, it's so interesting. But I think that last point you said that it's even more likely when they also engage in offline or non-cyber crimes. That right. makes sense because that also, again, to kind of dovetail with psychopathy, you know, I always call them the equal opportunity offender. Like they're 
crimes when psychopaths do commit crimes are so varied. I mean, that's one of the items yes, is a diverse exactly. criminal history. So this is all, all making sense. Right. And let me just make one note about what, what you were referring to my little statements there. When I had the, the expletive use, I was inhabiting the perspective of a criminal because mm -hmm. that is something that has really come out, especially when the federal agencies investigate these types of crimes, especially if they are instigated from overseas, when they question these people who have been caught for committing these crimes, their attitude is always, well, it's their fault for being so stupid. Totally. Oh yeah. Why, yeah. why would, why should I be responsible responsible for somebody else's stupidity yeah for sure Interesting. So i wasn't calling anyone <laughs> out there who was a victim stupid i was inhabiting i was acting acting uh, i think they can tell by now when you're acting i hope so <laughs> so let's look at birth order which is i think endlessly fascinating to people <laughs> people love to talk about right? it right exactly and it's been recognized as a significant factor in family dynamics as it can influence the personalities behaviors and expectations of siblings. However, the research is sometimes incongruent. So, you know, this is one of those psych issues, again, that really gets generalized in pop culture and media. Right. I always think of like the layperson armchair psychologist who's like, oh, but what's the birth order? And then you tell them and they're like, mm, mm -hmm. mm. like I knew it. Yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's exactly what a Scorpio firstborn would say. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so a common belief is that the firstborns tend to be more responsible and achievement oriented, while middleborn children are more adaptable and social and then the youngest ones are more relaxed and accommodating, or more commonly, the eldest is always the most put upon, the middle is always lost and forgotten, and then the youngest being a spoiled, entitled brat. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> <Are you laughs> isn't, that sort of, isn't that the Brady Bunch sort of thing? Yes. Poor Jan. She's always Poor lost. Jan. Yeah. So these stereotypes are based on birth order theory, which is an actual thing. It suggests that each child's position in the family then affects their development and relationships with other family members. There are studies that have shown some support for birth order effects, but they've also have to acknowledge other factors that are way more important, such as gender age gap, family environment, and many times also financial means. Like sure. if it ends up being a family member or a family system where the older child has to go to work almost immediately, yeah. that's going to radically change the dynamics. You know, and the research on birth order effects has shown that firstborns tend to have higher levels of achievement, motivation, and conscientiousness and academic performance improvements than later borns. But that's just, that's a tendency. That's not yes. a, a strong effect. For example, there's a meta-analysis of 503 studies that showed that firstborns scored higher on personality traits such as neuroticism, agreeableness, and openness to experience than their younger siblings. So I think that's a really interesting combination there. I find that fascinating. Yeah. So agreeableness, which we would all think is like, oh, great, you, you want people to be agreeable. But if the agreeableness is born out of being neurotic and anxious about holding up the bar that their parents yeah. have put on them, then that's a whole different dynamic, right? Yeah, it's one of those that you want kind of in the happy middle range. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The study also showed that firstborns are more likely to pursue traditional career paths like law, medicine, engineering, and they even show more likelihood of leadership positions. But there are other researchers who argue that these effects may be due to parental investment and expectations rather than biological or psychological factors related to birth order. Hmm. Really? I mean, it's so funny, the, the different emphasis on 
sort of the cultural view of this. There's a really hilarious guy who I believe is either he's of Middle Eastern descent and maybe Persian, but he's on TikTok. Oh, gosh. And he's hysterical because he plays multiple roles. Uh He'll play he'll play himself as the middle son. And then he'll play his dad and then he'll play a kidnapper. So the middle son has been kidnapped. The kidnapper is calling the dad to tell him what the ransom is. And the guy's like, hold on, hold on. Which son is it? Oh, shit. Oh, the middle son (laughs) hangs up the phone. (laughs) Who? Who? As long as it's not the eldest son, I don't care. I feel like, you know how we do our little entertainment segment at the bottom that we are inadvertently entering a TikTok segment into every episode now. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, Social man. media Sorry, for you, people. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I hope you're not sick of it, but it makes us giggle, so yeah, exactly. there it is. Okay, but despite all of the research here, these theories do not consistently bear out. So there's a 2015 study of over 300,000 high school students from 26 mm. countries, which found no significant birth order effects. And that's pretty robust, that is, you know, to like look at it from huge. across the world. That's fantastic. Yeah. And that was, they were looking at personality traits. They were looking at academic performance. Nada. So some researchers have criticized birth order theory for just oversimplifying complex family dynamics and ignoring other factors that may influence sibling relationships. Again, like parental favoritism, sibling rivalry, or just the overall family structure. Therefore, a more nuanced and context-dependent view of birth order effects is necessary to understand the role of birth order in family interactions and outcomes. And while all of this research is interesting and may be relevant in terms of a dominant personality coercing a younger sibling, it doesn't seem to speak to the more genetic and environmental factors. So while these theories are still kind of interesting, you know, I will always be the first one to say I just get so happy when I see a really fantastic, well-constructed master's thesis that disproves overgeneralization. So I wanted to quote this guy's master's thesis. To summarize, the findings of the analysis indicate that birth order does not play a significant role in shaping deviant behaviors among adolescents. This suggests that criminologists need not be concerned with birth order theories. Instead, the analysis highlight the importance of other family factors, such as intact family structure, family education, parental supervision, and parental attachment, which consistently predicts delinquent outcomes. It's worth noting that while the direct effects of birth order were not observed, it would be premature to disregard the study of indirect effects that may influence the reporting of certain family mechanisms, such as parental attachment and supervision. Further research is needed in the field of criminology to explore the effects of these family mechanisms and examine the impact of sibling relationships on delinquent or deviant outcomes. Love it. So well stated. I wonder if it's almost become such a pop culture trope that parents are inadvertently kind of living up to these expectations with their kids. Kind of, you know, like all the studies when you tell teachers, like this group of kids is dumb, this group of kids is, yeah, this group group is smart and that's what they produce. So we're going to give you some cases, which are fascinating. Once I dove in, it was like having to cherry pick the ones that really popped out. I mean, there were so many choices. Oh boy. We're going to start with the Scissor Sisters. Linda Mulhall, a resident of Dublin, has completed her 15-year sentence for manslaughter in the killing of her mother's partner. And back in October 2006, she was found guilty of causing the death of Farah Swale Noor, 
a Kenyan national, and her sister, Charlotte Mulhall, remains incarcerated, serving a life sentence for her much more significant role in the murder. Charlotte was released on limited and temporary conditions in late 2022, prior to the Christmas holidays. Her release is limited to day excursions and family visits. Due to not having a fixed address upon release, she was unable to avail herself of this temporary release. That's the reason? <laughs> I Yeah, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around it. So, so she doesn't clearly, have an address, so they're just like, okay, you can go on little day trips. Well, also, like, you're you're visiting family, but clearly they're like, okay, you can come, you can have lunch, yeah. but you are not staying Do here. not put this address down. Do not send us any mail, right? Oh my gosh, all right. So the two sisters, known as the Scissor Sisters, fatally attacked Noor at their mother's residence in Richmond Cottages, located off of Dublin's North Strand. And during the trial, evidence suggested that the sisters, along with Noor and their mother, Kathleen, were all under the influence of vodka and ecstasy when Noor made an aggressive advance towards Linda. And despite being warned to leave her alone, he persisted, leading Charlotte to grab a Stanley blade and slit his throat. So Noor, who had a wife and two children back in Kenya, stumbled into a downstairs bedroom where Charlotte proceeded to stab him with a kitchen knife up to 20 times. And then Linda admitted to striking him several times in the head with a claw hammer. Horrific. Jesus. Oh my gosh. Just the I mean, what was in that ecstasy? Oh, oh my God. Seriously. When, I, when I've done MDMA, it's like, I love the world. Oh like, my God. What is going on here? What Jeez. kind of vodka was that? Yeah, really? It was like the pop-off vodka with like the potato peels still flowing in. Oh my gosh. So the sisters spent hours dismembering Nora's body in the bathroom placing most of the remains in black plastic bags. They then disposed of his limbs and torso in the nearby Royal Canal and took his head on a bus Ooh. to Tallet, hiding it in a park before ultimately disposing of it in another location. The victim's head and penis were never found. Linda claimed that it was Charlotte's idea to dismember the body, while Charlotte, who initially denied involvement in any of the murder, stated that their mother Kathleen had instructed them to kill Noor and provided them with the knife and the hammer. And then it was alleged that their mother then ordered them to cut up the body. Mm. Also, like, I mean, I'm not encouraging anybody to engage in any kind of criminal activity, but you know you don't get rid of the evidence, like literally just down the street. That makes no sense at all. Ten days after this really brutal murder, Noor's arms and legs were discovered floating in the nearby Royal Canal. His body was recovered in seven separate parts after a passersby noticed his leg with a sock on the end protruding from the water. During police interrogation, Charlotte Mullall stated, my mommy just said, just cut him up. I just remember cutting. I cut him up with the knife. Linda, a mother of four, confessed, Charlotte started sawing his legs with the knife. The smell wouldn't go away. I think about it every single night. Mm. Detective Paul Carney described the case as the most grotesque killing he had witnessed during his entire professional career. So both sisters in this case have a history of substance abuse involving alcohol and drugs. Charlotte also has a conviction for prostitution, while Linda had suffered abuse from her former partner, who was subsequently imprisoned for mistreating Linda's children. And additionally, their mother, Kathleen, was sentenced to five years in prison for cleaning up the murder scene. The court learned that she had been in an abusive relationship with Norris since 2002 and had endured significant suffering due to the relationship, as well as past abuse from both her parents and later her husband, John Mulhall. So yeah. lots of stuff going on with this family. You know, I think there's not a terrible diversity to their abuse. There's just a terrible diversity of factors. You have the substance abuse. Yes, 
the being victims of abuse, the criminal history, just spouses going to prison. It's a lot going on. There's a lot going on there. And I uh, particularly, I can't help but sort of go back in this case to now clearly, I mean, I have a bias because I can't even imagine engaging in that level of substance use with a parent. And that probably is reflective of my age, my cultural origin. I get it. But there is something that there's an ick factor to heavy use of substances with your parent and those crossing of boundaries. I mean, yes, they're, they were all adults at the time. So you you enter into a different level of relationship with your parents, but like parting to that extent, hard drugs, well, like really heavy liquor, that just doesn't make sense. And all we, yeah, all we have are the stories of the three women implicated, right? So we don't right. we don't get and to what hear what their attorneys have said, totally. right? Totally. We don't get to hear what the victims said here. Who knows what story was made up afterwards cuz clearly they were in cahoots to some level. So again, we're left with like this is this a battered women's syndrome situation with the daughters like coming to the rescue or there was one last inappropriate right. move on this guy's part or was this a planned thing where they're like, let's get him liquored up? And who knows? It's just, we, yeah. don't, we don't have that information. Very interesting. I think you make a really interesting point. And now that maybe, you know, one of them is out, yeah. at least on a temporary basis, there may be some more information that comes up. Or maybe she just wants to avoid the spotlight, which would be completely understandable. So our next example is entitled The Wichita Massacre. It's also known as the Wichita Horror, a violent violent crime spree that occurred in December 2000 in Wichita, Kansas. The incident involved five individuals, Reginald and Jonathan Carr. They were both brothers from Dodge City and their accomplices, Cedric D. Carr, Carlos D. Carr, and then an accomplice who was only identified as RLH. Not sure why he's only identified by those initials. Perhaps he was a minor at the time. Well, not sure. So are the other guys, they're all related too, right? They all have the same last name, all four of them. Right, okay. right. So, I, but I don't think they were siblings. They might have been cousins. Coffee so them. like, okay. you know, the siblings and then extended family. Because the Carr brothers and their associates targeted several individuals during a home invasion spree, resulting in multiple murders, sexual assaults, and robberies. Hmm. So, you know, I would, I always am so interested in people's backgrounds and, and how they were raised. But data in this other for the Carr brothers is limited. It is known that their mom, identified as Mary, raised them as a single parent. And while various sources suggest that the brothers faced significant financial and legal difficulties growing up, there's just not a lot of information to flesh that out. Mm -hmm. The sources do indicate that there was a chronic lack of stability during their childhood and little involvement from their biological father. Again, just nothing specific that I could, that I was able to find. Yeah. So over the six days, the men embarked on a series of brutal criminal acts targeting unsuspecting victims. On December 8th, 2000, the brothers robbed and wounded a 23-year-old assistant baseball coach. Then just three days later, a 55-year-old cellist and librarian, as she attempted to flee from them in her car, the cellist died from her injuries three weeks later. And on December 14th, the brothers randomly targeted a house that they broke into. This house was the home of four and individuals, three men, one woman, and the victims included a local high school teacher, a finance director, preschool teacher, and a former financial analyst studying to become a priest and then a teacher. So, I mean, that just, when you hear just a little bit about the victims, which we don't hear enough about ever, nor is there ever enough to 
pull from the research because of course everyone just focuses on the offender right but man you're just like wow you just essentially stormed into this house of just normal normal people yeah but after burglarizing the house the cars forced the victims to undress they bound them and then subjected them to repeated sexual assaults they then drove the victims to atms to empty their bank accounts before taking them to the striker soccer complex where they attempted execution on all five victims by shooting them in the back of the heads. That's like a whole different level mm. of motivation, right? You know, just psychopathy. It really is. <laughs> Two of the victims died at the scene while one managed to survive by playing dead. And then the other one, although critically injured, did manage to escape. The woman survived due to her plastic barrette in her hair, deflecting the bullet somewhat. Wow. Naked and in freezing weather, she walked over a mile to seek help and shelter, eventually reporting the incident and providing very accurate descriptions of her attackers to the couple who took her in before the police arrived. Following the murders, the cars returned to the house to search for more valuables, and they brutally beat the young woman's pet dog to death with a golf club. Just horrible. On the following day, the Carr brothers and their accomplices abducted another victim, forcing him to withdraw money from an ATM and then shot him execution style as well. The crime spree finally came to an end when the suspects were apprehended on December 14th, 2000, following a high-speed police chase. The Carr brothers were subsequently charged with multiple counts, including murder, robbery, and rape. Understandably, the crimes instilled a lot of fear in the Wichita community, resulting in a significant increase in the sales of firearms, locks, and home security systems. And this case has garnered significant attention due to the legal controversies around the car's death sentences. Again, in our show notes, lots of information if you're interested in reading the newspapers from the time. Yeah, so the Carr brothers, as you said, were captured by the police with two of the surviving victims identifying Reginald as for sure one of the perpetrators. And the district attorney stated that robbery was believed to be their motive based on the evidence. I mean, it's just above and beyond yeah. what you need for a robbery, which is oh yeah, always the indicator of psychopathy and particularly like, again, going back to sex crimes, when it's more brutal than it needs to be to quote unquote, complete the act, that's when you're looking at that higher level of psychopathy. So with the testimony of the female victim that survived during the trial, both brothers were found guilty on nearly all of the 113 charges against them. Holy crap. Again, including kidnapping, robbery, rape, multiple counts of capital murder and first degree murder. Reginald Carr was convicted on 50 counts while Jonathan Carr was convicted on 43. And they were- A lot of those stuck. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, right? exactly. So they were sentenced to death for the capital murders. So our next case, to me, this is always disturbing. All of these things are disturbing. Absolutely. <laughs> are you all these. I know, right? Yes, they're all disturbing. Ooh. I'm so sorry for, for putting a qualifier in there. But we're now we're talking about teenagers, mm-hmm. which always just like there's something quite unnerving about it. So Jasmia and Tasmia Whitehead are known as the Conyers twins, and they gained notoriety due to their involvement in a really terrible crime. I mean, I say really terrible, it was horrific, committed in 2010. The twins, age 16 at the time, were charged with the murder of their mother, Jarmika Nikki Whitehead. The crime took place in their Conyers, Georgia home on January 13th, 2010. Freaked me out because so many of my nieces and nephews and family members live in that area. Actually, actually grew up in, in Conyers, oh so that always flipped me out. 
out. What's going on in Conyers? Yeah. The twins were accused of brutally stabbing their mother to death, inflicting multiple wounds. Their motive for the crime remains unclear, with the main theory being that the with the main theory being that the twins were chafing at having to follow their mother's household rules. There's been no evidence or, or implication of abuse in the home, but understandably, this incident shocked the local community and got nationwide media mm. attention. So the case against Jasmine and Tasmia Whitehead involved extensive investigations and very thorough police work, including interviews and closed circuit security camera recordings that ended up not only chilling me, I found that they were really, really fascinating. And you can still, this case has been covered on several different shows like Dateline. So sure. and you can look them up and see some very interesting footage of their interactions on camera. On January 13th, 2010, seemingly distressed teenage twins flagged down law enforcement to report the murder of their 34-year-old mother. So there was an incident. I mean, I, I would encourage people to listen to the whole story because it's very, very interesting. Yeah. So on entering the home, law enforcement officials were confronted with a violent crime scene with Sergeant Ken Swift of Conyers PD describing pools of blood on the carpet, drag marks leading from you know, the carpet, along the carpet to the master bedroom, and then blood spatter covering the walls ceilings, furniture, and the mother's body was discovered in a bathtub. Mm. Subsequent investigation and the interrogation tapes later obtained by news outlets shed further light on the twins' account of the events. Tasmia described hearing her sister scream and witnessing blood on the floor, resembling scenes from television shows. However, doubts arose as detectives conducted separate questioning with inconsistencies emerging from the teenagers' testimonies. So detectives observed that the twins had been wearing gloves inside and upon their removal, noted that scratch and bite marks were present on their hands. The girls attributed the marks to their own fighting and nervousness. And in the released video from their interviews, when alone at the police station, the twins, not too convincingly here, moan and cry about their mother's death. You know, we hate making statements about situations like this, right? Because we're always yeah. saying it's never like an accurate indicator, but mm -hmm. the, their acting is so bad on this tape. Yeah. It's it's really disturbing, especially given just how mechanical their performance is. Mm. They like kind of mechanically put their arms around each other and dramatically put their heads on the table and they moan and they cry. It's all crocodile tears. Yeah. But it's, it's really, really disturbing to watch. And four months after the incident, both of them were arrested finally in connection with the mother's murder. Eventually mm -hmm. police interview resulted in them confessing to their crimes, stating that the violent act had emerged during a dispute with their mom concerning their ongoing tardiness for school and their ongoing violation of household rules. Jasmia claimed that on the day of the murder, their mother had attempted to hit them with a pot and had also threatened them with a knife. Jasmia then recounted engaging in a struggle where her mother appeared to have the upper hand with the knife. And in response, Jasmia struck her with the pot and Tasmia proceeded to stab their mother. Jasmia also admitted to briefly wielding the knife, but she asserted that she could not bring herself to inflict deep wounds. Hmm. I don't know about this confession. <laughs> yeah. Police reports indicate that the victim had sustained over 50 stab wounds during the attack, contradicting Jasmian's account. 
and Jasmia further asserted that her mother's final words were expressions of hatred towards them and the belief that they would end up in jail. So both twins ended up being charged as adults with voluntary manslaughter, making false statements, and possession of a knife during the commission of a crime. I mean, not that they had to make the distinction, like, of course, it was voluntary manslaughter, but maybe that's just how... The law is written in Georgia. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it was, it says uh, in the research that we got that she was sentenced to 20 years in prison for voluntary manslaughter and then five years for falsification in government matters. Uh, and then okay. five years for possession of a knife and commission of a crime. Yeah. There must be something going on about how they constructed this choice of charges. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. So Tesmia ended up pleading guilty in January of 2014. She received the 30 year prison sentence. And then the following month, her sister Jasmia also pleaded guilty and received an identical sentence. And they'll be eligible for parole in 2029. Not too far away. So that's interesting because there's a there's two different sources. One is saying 30 years. The other one is saying 20 years. Oh, so maybe they got time off. Maybe there was further adjustment. Anyway, despite what the length of the sentence is, there's a, a lot there at play that they're going for. I think one of the challenges is that they were minors, Sure, but everybody's realizing in this exactly what you were talking about before. This is not just a crime of passion. This is two young women going off on their mom in a way that's yeah. overkill. To well, use the term, right? yeah, quite literally. And, you know, when it comes to twins, there's just, there's so much known, but there's so much unknown. And I always think back to, you know, the Swedish twins and right. how enmeshed they can be. And here with teens, we're seeing that they're still living together, still in close proximity. So even more so constantly probably an echo chamber for each other and whatever their hatred is towards mom. So yeah, it makes sense that there's just, they're in an echo chamber or they're marinating in their own anger, sure. kind of stirring each other up. Brutal. Yeah, But brutal again, stuff. thank you for pointing out earlier that example of the overkill in the situations. Like there's crime, there's horrific crime, and then there's over the top, like more than is necessary. And yeah. then I kind of link that back to what we started with, that sort of the disinhibition, you know, of the sibling. I mean, they're twins, so they're, you know, only a couple of seconds apart in age. Yeah. But is one of them a dominant personality? With the cars, was one of them more of a dominant personality? Just so interesting. It is. It is. So a current case back in the media after a long time, I'm sure everybody's kind of hearing the sort of opening the discussion again. The Menendez brothers, yep. they are back in the news following the revelation from a former Menudo member who now alleges after all these years that their father actually did molest him. He's now an adult and there is a Peacock three-part series entitled Menendez plus Menudo, Boys Betrayed. And it shares the story of Roy Rosello and his claim that he was also sexually abused by the former RCA record executive and the father of the Menendez brothers, Mr. Jose Menendez. Mm -hmm. So Rosello joined Menudo in 1983 at age 13 replacing a 15-year-old member who had aged out. So remember, Menudo members were always replaced before turning 16. Yep. Very interesting. Very, very interesting, right? And Rosselio alleges that one year later, he was drugged and raped by Jose Menendez in their New Jersey family home. Yes. So the Menendez brothers, Eric and Lyle, murdered their father, Jose, and his wife, their mother, Kitty Menendez, on August 20th, 
1989 in their Beverly Hills mansion. And the boys reportedly used shotguns to kill their parents and later claimed that they had done so out of self-defense because they had been physically and sexually abused by their father and were fearing that the secret was going to come out and that their father was actually going to probably murdered them. However, the evidence presented at their trial reveals a bit of a different story. So during the highly publicized trial, both brothers claimed that Jose, their father, had subjected them to years of physical and sexual abuse, which drove them to commit the murders, essentially. And the defense team did find sexually explicit photos of the brothers taken when they were children. Mm. Their defense attorney, Leslie Abramson, did not dispute that they had killed their parents, but she had mounted her defense that the brothers had endured all these years of abuse that was not stopped by their mother. And really, they were seen as kind of one unit, if you will. And that's why they had to kill both of them. Right. Though, despite that creative defense, the prosecution presented a strong argument that the young man had killed Jose and Kitty solely for financial gain. And, you know, look, their behaviors were questionable. Following the deaths of their parents, the brothers traveled to Israel almost immediately. And that seems weird. You know, I think at the time they're like, we're overwhelmed. We need to get away from all the pressure on us. And but they were also really racking up a lot of spending on a lot of expensive things, mm -hmm. expensive hotels, restaurants, shopping sprees. And, you know, that seemed to indicate that they knew what they were doing and that they were sort of going to Israel not to get away, but to actually flee and evade capture. You know, they were observed continuing this very wealthy lifestyle and these extravagant purchases. And I guess I think probably our culture, the people observing just were off put by that. Like you should be in more. Of mourning, course, of course. Right? You should, this is not what you should be doing. So that definitely did not make them look good. This case really captivated the nation and it sparked this intense debate about the nature of family dynamics. And interestingly, it came on the heels of the O.J. Simpson trial, which to this day is believed to have had a significant outcome on the proceedings of the Menendez trial. Right. Like we can't let another one get away. Yep. That sort of thing. Yeah. So self-defense was not supported by forensic evidence as presented at the trial. I mean, there's a theoretical way to think about self-defense, right? Like battered women syndrome. But as far as like having to fight for their life in the moment, not so much in this case. So the forensic evidence supported the idea that the murders were premeditated. I mean, looking at things like firearm purchases, you know, sort of sneaking up behind the parents initially. And then not just the behavior like you're talking about of after you know, police are called to the scene and all that, but like in the moment, attempting to cover up their mm -hmm. crime, burning clothing, disposing of weapons, picking up ammunition, manipulating the crime scene, essentially, and then telling the story when they call it in. And the prosecution asserted that the brothers had been possibly inspired by the movie The Billionaire's Boys Club, with evidence also revealing that Eric had co-written a screenplay with a friend that centered on a wealthy youth who murders his parents in order to inherit the family fortune. So many twists in the story, including one of the most damning pieces of evidence where Eric, like this part is just nuts for so many reasons. Really? You know, racked by guilt, confesses to the murder of his parents while in session with a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist had been taping these sessions and the session was either overheard in the moment or he later played this tape or he later played this tape for his girlfriend, the psychiatrist's girlfriend. And then she goes to the police 
after this. After they have a breakup, right? Right, right. yeah. It almost exactly. feels like, it feels like it, if this is accurate and we don't know which, how it was heard, it feels like it was retaliatory towards the psychiatrist who's a Farkin yep, piece Parker. of crap for <laughs> if insane. he did play that tape. I mean, I'm not saying that like it would be, I mean, our our ethical standards and our legal, our training in, in law and ethics as psychologists and even as medical doctors, like it's mm -hmm. just very clear, mm -hmm. you know, unless there's an imminent threat, you don't reveal things. Right. Like I use that, this example but, all the time. If oof. you have already committed the murder, you are totally free and clear to tell me about it. And I can't tell anyone about it. So, I mean, this is literally that that scenario, but... If they're your client. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. If they're not your client, you can... <laughs> <laughs> no, no so privilege please, there. please, when we're at conferences, do not come up and <laughs> confess to us because we can't keep that information. Yeah. No, I think, obviously, this happened in a much different era, right? There's so many nuances Very. to these trials, multiple in this case. And I know people know the evidence and know the trials very well. I'm not super well-versed and savvy on this case in particular, but I think today, many of things would have been handled differently, even just in the court system. But I also think it's not really debatable anymore that they were horrifically abused and that right. that family was just monsters and everybody was terrified of Jose. I think it's more about, you know, it was, it was almost too early for some of the evidence about severely abused family members and how they might take this sort of preemptive strike, how that plays. And the wonderful Ann Burgess testified at the trial. She had yeah. interviewed one of the boys for hours and hours. Another doctor, Dr. Conte, I believe, interviewed the other one. They were both recently on Surviving the Survivor YouTube channel and podcast, giving their take on it. But so a YouTube video well worth watching for sure. But I think it's just Again, it's not a matter of if they were horribly abused. It's just what do we now do with that when we look at that in the context of murders? I really appreciate the, the fact that you are putting that into context about what conversations were happening at the time because Farrah Fawcett in the 70s had done the burning bed yep. like we've talked about in our IPV episode. That was a turning point, but it was a turning point for women to talk about uh -huh. striking back. And this was a time where everybody was questioning their sexuality, sure. you know, and I'm, I'm not justifying the actions that they took at all, but nobody was ready to have a conversation about abused kids turning into murderers. And certainly nobody was willing to talk about the trauma that comes with being molested or that as a kid. sexual abuse can happen in Beverly Hills. With a right. rich ass family. By a dad to it, his sons, right? Because totally. there's so many layers. Yes. And now this coming out all these years later that to me, and I'm going to make some conjecture and I'm be, be very interested to see what comes out after this series gets more playing. I think there are other victims that will come forward. Oh, no doubt. Absolutely. No doubt. And you know. zero surprise at all, because we know when there's intrafamilial sexual abuse, they right. don't just stay in the home. Nope. They absolutely have crossover to people who aren't family members and crossover into different age ranges. So I think, you know, the the son that he abused the longest was between ages like six and 18. A six-year-old is a very different body type person, it, 
object to be sexually attracted to. So right. Jose had quite the range, it sounds like. Which What a monster. Yeah, it doesn't track. We always think it's very fixated, but it, it typically is not. So, but yeah, I think similarly when, again, we did our battered women's syndrome, you know, Lenore Walker had done all this research and basically the judge was like, eh, it's too new. No, we're not going to, yeah. we're not going to mm. allow it. Even the right. APA was writing letters to the court and like, no, just not ready, you know, not ready yeah. to hear it. So, and so it, it just takes time for it to be, you know, to, for it to emerge into the zeitgeist and then be recognized totally. as important and important of important to the level of having some observation and scrutiny. Yeah. Like, so there's just so many steps and so many layers, but so the, I think the big question now is people are saying, should they have gotten life knowing what we know now and what's accepted and will this documentary change anything? So we're interested to know your thoughts. I know you'll maybe, let us know guys. Maybe we'll follow through with make that our doc review. That could be one of our doc reviews if we want to jump could in. Do that. Yeah. Notable mention that probably deserves a sort of intersection episode all on its own is the the brothers who committed the Boston bombings. That's a fascinating story with certainly mm-hmm. sibling impact, modeling behavior, coercive ideology. Control. Yes, fixed, rigid ideology. So we'll probably come back and revisit that at some point as well. You guys, we are in the midst of recouping or regathering from London at this point. We can't wait to talk more about that. We'll give you guys a heads up on our next streaming. So please tune in and have a great day. And we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye, everyone. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.